This is Paul Nobles from eatperform.com and I am sitting here with many of the Quick Start folks from Eat Perform. Quick Start is a product that you can buy through Eat Perform and it kind of gets you up to speed similar to what you would think given the name. And it allows you to kind of have you know a little bit of back and forth. It's also a little bit more advanced sometimes and so we try to take themes break them down a little bit more. I know we are getting a lot of interest um, on the podcast. We really super appreciate everybody. I'm sure many of you are new to us. And so welcome to the craziness of eating and living life. Who knew that could happen? And yeah, more or less, you know, if you're of the subscribing mind we'd appreciate it if you did that rate and review us I do check those fairly often um, I really want to hear what you guys are saying and I want to be able to kind of give you you know what you want right um, and we've been able to kind of diversify everything from the coaches course where we're interviewing you know some of the top names in the industry to you know obviously some of the Q&A that many of the new people are kind of you know concerned about and so we we sort of try to you know bridge the gap for everyone where you have kind of your your new people and and honestly the new people ask the best questions by far um and then you have kind of the and you know and the best thing about the new folks is that they're not scared to ask questions because they're scared out of their damn mind um which is awesome and uh, it, it just allows for like some some really cool interaction and and we did one this week and we we what was the title of it um why you'll quit um, before you see results or something it was a pretty good one so I wanted to talk a little bit about you know is there's this article going around and it's kind of funny because progenics is not really a protein company that is widely known right it's kind of known within CrossFit but other than that pretty much you could say progenics and no one would know what you're talking about and there's a few reasons for that and there's a few reasons why they're not super mainstream and I'll kind of run into that a little bit but the criticism of this article and I can't remember what the name of the article was it was something like you know um, you know, even though my coach likes it, I think Progenic sucks or something. And the article goes into quality of protein, the amount of, you know, times that Progenics has been sued, how they've kind of changed their corporate structure to kind of deal with all this kind of craziness that goes on around Progenics. And so I figured I would give you guys my experience. But you're going to be maybe a little surprised at what I'm going to say because frankly if their corporate culture was totally horrible and the protein tastes good which you know they have a few flavors that are really good one of the things that's interesting there was a there's a guy I can't remember if he's the CEO or CEO or whatever it is but his name's Ryan um, and I was talking to Ryan, this was probably four years ago when the salmon protein came out, and I was like, dude, you gotta quit fucking around with the salmon protein, you know, like, no one gives a shit about salmon protein, you know, so what you need to do is get these athletes some carbs, and um, he's like, yeah, you know, I don't know, you know, what are you thinking in terms of carbs? I said, well, I've seen some good sweet potato mixes, and if I were you guys, I would pursue that. And as you guys know, they later on came out with sweet potato protein. And I'm sure no one is dying to give me credit for that. But I don't really care to take credit for that. But I would take more credit for it if it was actually good. It's actually one of... Progenics is really good at flavoring protein. Um, they didn't do a great job. I haven't tasted you know the the sweet potato since it first came out but the um, when it first came out I was not too happy with the results it was a little bland um, and not as flavorful as some of the other things so when you look at 
you know, products like the iPhone, right? Steve Jobs was a pretty well known for being a jerk. Um, but the iPhone is really cool. Um, the Lululemon guy, you know, says negative things about women, but let's be honest, they put out some really good products. So a lot of times we can look past some indiscretions as it relates to corporate culture. So I'm going to just talk to you guys a little bit about what their culture, their culture is like and, and just my experience, and then we'll kind of get moving to the, to the webinar. It's not like super controversial or anything like that, but it's, it's sort of interesting. Um, so when ePerform first started off, you know, we were kind of looking at different ways to monetize. And what we wanted to do was align ourselves with brands that were consistent to powerlifting, CrossFit, you know, anything that was active. And so Progenix definitely stood out at that point. They had an affiliate program. And, you know, being a f being familiar with affiliate programs, I was like, well, this, is, this seems like a good fit. And so I signed up. And I would say within... You know, like the first two or three days, it was pretty obvious that we were going to be their biggest affiliate by far. You know, if you guys aren't aware, you know, we're Reebok's, you know, biggest, um, at least in the U.S., but I would assume worldwide as well. Um, the thing, you know, we're talking about online affiliates, people that sell products from their website, you know, or their Facebook page. So we sold a ton of progenics, everything's kind of hunky-dory. I don't know those guys, they don't know me, right? So now all of a sudden, we start having some conversation back and forth. Apparently they have a little bit of a dispute with their website developer, that's a little bit of what these guys were talking about. Let me back up for just a second though. When we're talking about quality of protein, the big thing that progenics talks about is the fact that they have hydrolyzed whey, okay? So the skinny on hydrolyzed whey, because, you know, a lot of people want to break down like the, the components of the, you know, how hydrolyzed is it or, or how not hydrolyzed is it. What Progenics is selling is basically non, it, it's a, it's a debitterized whey, um, debitterized hydrolyzed whey. And the reason why you have to debitterize it is because it tastes horrible. I mean, like gag reflex horrible. I actually was really attracted to progenics in the beginning because I have a dairy issue. When I say a dairy issue, I'm saying, you know, that I'm not, you know, lactose is not my problem. Typically, if you're taking some kind of whey protein, there's not a whole lot of lactose in it. So that's not really an issue. The reason why you would take hydrolyzed whey is because the hydrolyzing process breaks it down. And, and it hydrolyzed whey is the reason why baby formula smells horrible is because, you know, their basic assumption is that, you know, these babies would, you know, break down the formula a little bit easier because it's in peptides and it can be absorbed into the small intestine and then you know they can grow into big strong babies right so it's the same it's the same stuff that's in you know progenics to a degree like i said as you start to make it taste better you start to reduce the quality of you know the hydro the hydrolyzation process right? the hydrolyzed process there you go um so is it like super hydrolyzed whey? No. Um, I get my hydrolyzed whey from True Nutrition. Um, as you guys know, you know, we work with a company called Extreme Formula Formulation. Um, when I, and I, I can deal with whey protein in small doses, but, you know, to be completely honest with you, I can't take it because, you know, I have, a dairy allergy and so we are sort of working on you know getting some hydrolyzed but the problem with hydrolyzed it doesn't taste very good 
you know. So I get a lot of my hydrolyzed stuff from True Nutrition, which if you want to deal with the taste a little bit better, you can do, you know, kind of double. I'm just telling you, it ain't going to taste good. And so usually I take it in kind of smaller doses. Um, but when we started working with Extreme Formulations, the first thing I said to them, I said, guys, I really don't even want to mess around with this. You know, it's too much work, you know, for too little money. And I got too many things to do. I said, but if your stuff tastes good, I'll sell it. You know, because as far as I can tell, that's the only thing that really matters. And previous to that, because I mean, I'd taken Optimum Nutrition. I'm trying to think of what the other one, like April recommended one form of protein that she was getting from, uh, from uh, Dimatize. There you go, Dimatize. I, I just did not like Dimatize at all. Um, I thought it tasted like chalk. And once again, it's not like super hydrolyzed whey because, you know, obviously um, super hydrolyzed whey ends up being more bitter. So the reason why we started selling Extreme Formulation and, and, and why we're ultimately going to be branding that as Eat Form Protein is because it tastes really good. You know, every single flavor is like off the charts good. And in protein, you know, in Progenics credit, you know, I, I remember their peanut butter, um, their chocolate peanut butter was really good. Uh, the cookies and cream, I, they, 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 you know, got rid of it at one point. Maybe, maybe it's come back. I don't know. Um, so they had some, they had some flavors that I liked. Um, they had some flavors that taste good. That's why people stayed with Progenics, and that's why they paid you know, $70 as opposed to like the $35 to $40 price point that we sell extreme formula formulations at. And um, and I think, by the way, either form protein sounds a lot better than extreme formulation. So that's another reason why we plan on um, kind of rebranding that. But the, the interesting part about all of this, you know, maybe it's interesting, maybe it's not interesting. Um, so, first year, I deal with them, talk to Ryan, sweet potato stuff comes out, you know, all, all cordial, right? Now, I had started to hear the rumblings of the issues that they had from a corporate perspective, and, you know, that's, that type of stuff was starting to come out. The, the lawsuits between their web developers and people that had percentages, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're gone. Then, you know, the second year, <coughs> I was, um, their rep here in Minnesota was a guy named Rob, who's like nice guy in the world. I don't think he works with them anymore. And, you know, he had been talking to me because he knew that I sold a lot of pro a lot of progenics at one point. And I was like, honestly, dude, you know, um, it kind of ended bad. I mean, I'd be interested in, in talking to somebody, but, you know, I, I just don't see things going real well. So I go up and I meet this VP guy, you know, and there's a lot of turnover with these guys, you know. I mean, I've never seen like a high end, you know, I, you know, let me just back up for just a second. You know, knowing a lot of the brands within CrossFit, you know, Killcliffe, you know, uh, you know, the the RX jump ropes. Um, I'm just trying to think, you know, there's just like a whole list of people. Uh, sweat angels. I mean, just just name anybody, right? Within CrossFit, RX bars. Um, you know, uh, you know, really a lot of brands that are within CrossFit are just like the best people to work with. They're like good folks. You know, like Progenics stands out as like the biggest dickheads in all of CrossFit, right? Um, I mean, just in terms of corporate stuff, you know, I mean, certainly some people have issues with, you know, some of the HQ stuff, but, you know, I think that can be overdone as well. You know, a lot of people think Dave Castro, you know, is like the worst guy on the planet, you know, from his online persona. But, you know, people that I know that know him personally think he's a pretty good dude. So, you know, you kind of always, you know, I try not to judge people. You know, until I kind of see them in real life and, and get to know them a little bit. And then, you know, I'll kind of, you know, give my perspective after that. So I was dealing with this one guy the, the year previous. You know, like I said, you know, we were selling a lot of protein. 
get to talk to the CEO, new product comes out. You know, I'm like one of these guys that if somebody uses my idea and it comes to life, you know, I have enough successful things in life to where I don't have to worry about whether or not like somebody used my idea. You know, like if you use my idea and it became awesome, that's cool. That just means I got really good ideas. So hopefully I'll have other good ideas and then I can capitalize them. And obviously to perform, you know, is fairly successful in that regard. So, you know, when we have a partner and, and a partner does well, even though it's a partner that we no longer work with, you know, I got no hate for that at all, right? So I meet with this guy, you know, he's kind of a newer VP, young guy, you know, I'm sure if you guys know the corporate structure, you'll know who this guy is, but, you know, I can't even remember his name at this point. So we go upstairs to meet with this guy. I'm sitting next to Rob. Once again, coolest guy going. Um, it, like so much so that I was like, how the hell are you working with Progenix, dude? I mean, like how can you even be around most of these people? And so, I, so I'll, I'll fully admit to you, I went into this meeting thinking these people are really, you know, not good people to work with. But, you know, the product tastes good. You know, the branding of their product is good. You know, in terms of like the website stuff, I don't, I don't know anything about that. I don't know how a lawsuit's going to go. In terms of quality of protein, I know more about, you know, protein than most people do. So a lot of the, the criticism that people would make about quality of protein I think is a little bit overdone there. And so I definitely, you know, think that, you know, that's that's not as big of an issue as, as people would like to make it out to be. The simple fact of the matter is that a hydrolyzed whey, you know, it is not going to be like this super high-end product unless, of course, it tastes horrible. So so from that perspective, I didn't have a problem having a discussion with these guys. So I sit down at this meeting with this dude and you know, first he kind of puts me off. Now I'm, I'm at the CrossFit game. Every year I go to the CrossFit games with my youngest daughter and, you know, being the youngest daughter of the perform guy at the CrossFit games is actually pretty cool, right? You know, you get to hang out with a lot of athletes that most people know and, you know, get to talk to them. And they're, they're all like just so sweet to my daughter. I mean, it's just, it's just unreal. The amount of time and energy that, especially the CrossFit women, you know, I don't really have a lot of interaction with the guys, you know, obviously um, Jordan Cook would be one. I'm just trying to think of a couple of the other guys that, that I talk to fairly regularly. I've had some interaction with Neil Maddox, but not, not a ton. Um, but yeah, mostly, oh, Nick Urankar, that would be another one that, uh, you know, I've had some conversations with. But in general, most of the women are the ones that um, I tend to know a little bit better and have conversations with and, and they're all really super friendly to my daughter. So I'm sitting here talking to this guy and it did strike me that he was really young. You know, that was sort of one thing, right? And then um, as we were having this conversation, you know, I mean, it took him 15 minutes to come to meet me. And, and I mean, like, I wish I could remember the specifics of the dollars that we were bringing to them, but it was a lot, right? Um, so I thought just from that perspective alone, you know, and, and Rob saying that to him, that I would get like just a, a tiny bit of respect, um, but, but that didn't play out. And you know what? Who cares? You know, that's not that big of a deal, you know, from my perspective, you know, when I'm looking at making an agreement with a partner you know, I, I'm, I'm just thinking about the families that work for Eat to Perform. You know, we're employee-owned business. You know, I want to make sure that, you know, my people are being represented. So the fact that this guy, you know, you know, disrespects me a little bit, you know, that's okay. That's not that big a deal to me. Um, and, and, and you know what, that that's just how things go sometimes. You know, I mean, would I have held it against him if we were able to figure something out? You know, um, I, I was really, you know, it was it was going to take some level of it. There was already a pretty, pretty big, you know, chasm there. 
And then after, you know, spending, you know, five to 10 minutes with this guy, um, you know, the chasm just became bigger. And, and, you know, since then I've, I've had, you know, some version of this discussion a few times. So we start the meeting and I'm having a discussion with this guy and I'm explaining to him, you know, Hey man, I sold a buttload of progenics, you know, um, you know, seems like there might be some kind of way for us to, you know, figure something out or maybe not, you know, like we'll see. And, uh, like he immediately goes, hold on one second. And so he, he's typing someone, you know, and I'm like, okay, that, all right, that's fine. You know, I mean, he, he's doing the text message thing in the middle of, of a meeting. Someone that brought a bunch of money to Progenics, no big deal. I'm not going to be worried about it. The son of a bitch, like, texted the whole meeting and was so dismissive of me to the point of disrespect that I looked to Rob later on and I go, who the fuck does this douchebag think he is? to text message in a meeting with me the whole time. I mean, like, forget the fact that I, I, I sold a lot of progenics at one point, and forget the fact that, you know, I have 1.5 million fans. Just don't be a douchebag to me as an individual, right? <laughs> like, that, 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 you know, so that was sort of striking. And what's so striking about it, like I said, I mean, you, you could go from booth to booth to booth, you know, business to business, and I mean, just like the best folks you'll ever deal with. And, and from that perspective, you know, progenics really stands out as a bunch of dickheads, you know. And so um, I don't think I'm the first person to say that. And I'm certain that I won't be the last one to say it. Um, but it's not going to stop anybody. I mean, the fact that they have Jason Kalipa, that was brilliant on their part, because I would say other than. You know, maybe Julie Fouché, uh, Rich Froning, Jason Kalipa is one of the people that people look to and go, that's a good dude. And so if that dude's involved with them, then they've got to be doing some good stuff. Eh, you know, that's not my my impression, but, you know, whatever. So there's that story. And so we'll, we'll get moving on the wave method and kind of talk about how you set up cutting cycles and the way that we sort of look at it. And we... We actually went over the two other ways, you know, that that we kind of talked to people about the two week mini cut, um, and then uh, gradually awesome approach. So that's the ABCs of cutting, and so this is going to be the last one. There is a lot of way. I mean, the one thing that I like to say, especially when we when we meet with when I do a live seminar, I, I don't get to do a lot of them. You know, I, I just don't like to leave home. And in general, you know, we do a lot of online sales. You know, usually if I'm going to meet people in a live setting, I'd much rather it be like a meetup where it's casual. Everybody can have fun. I want I want people like I want people to understand that eat to perform is not, you know, talking to you from a mountain and these are the rules. Right. I want people to understand that, like, I started to eat to perform to find people like me, the people that prioritize, you know, working out and getting better and, and, and losing fat, like, you know, in, in a fun way, right, where it's exciting and, and, and you're, you're really looking at kind of a lifelong approach. So the reason why I wrote the WAVE method and subsequently you know mike and i wrote the book we we were getting a lot of people that were kind of like the extreme athletes and you know we had a lot of you know olympian crossfit type people that we were working with at that point you know it's actually a lot less now <laughs> we probably only have like four or five people that we work with Whereas we were probably working with with ten to fifteen at, at that point, and that's just because you know we we it's just not an emphasis of our business. I'm our business. You know, my attention sort of goes where like the attention needs to be, and the attention needs to be on kind of the the regular folks. And and most of like the CrossFit Games Olympian type folks, you know that that are still with me, 
you know, they understand that the community is the priority. Most of the other people that left, you know, they really weren't super involved with the community and, and, you know, that's kind of a deal breaker for me, you know, because most of what we were doing was gratis, you know, and so we did it um, just for the exposure. And, you know, we even had instances where we would be paying those people, you know, to kind of, you know, help them, you know, get to where they wanted to go and kind of put some money in their pockets. Because what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, these athletes don't, they don't really make a lot of money. You know, like you see someone and they're sponsored by this or that. Yeah, that's awesome. They get a few bags of protein or they get, you know, you know, a jump rope or, or an entry into an event. I mean, it's not like, you know, they're just like Scrooge McDuck, you know, making it rain or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I came up with that one. Um, so we had a lot of people that were, were coming to us and they said, well, you know, one of the things that we heard was that you say to reduce workout days. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, um, and the reducing workout days is kind of a holdover from gradually awesome. And, and it's still relevant to a lot of people. And I would say if you're, um, you know, not like a gym crusher type person, you know, and you're trying to work out five to six days a week, you'll oftentimes you'll see a little bit better results with some more recovery. But we were working with these high-end athletes and, you know, we were consistently showing these people, you know, great results and, and they, you know, they were really leaning out and they were, they were getting better as athletes, but they were working out all the time. And so, so people were saying to me, well, wait a second, you know, you're telling these people to work out less and these people seem to be working out all the time. How is it possible that they're doing Eat to Perform? And I was like, well, you know, I mean, obviously Eat to Perform is not like, you know, static. It's, it's really kind of the idea is to eat an adequate amount for what you do and then obviously get a specific result. But what... The thing that kind of changed everything was with Gradually Awesome, the idea is to really move slowly. It's like really good, you know, if you're an athlete and you're 40 to 55, you know, and you're working out, you're doing, you know, backs and, you know, backs and chest, and buys and tries, you know, quads and glutes, you know, that kind of stuff or CrossFit or something like that. So it ends up being good for those types of people that are kind of scared to, you know, kind of up their calories in a big way. But if you're, you know, good athlete, you've been training the good majority of your life, the wave method is probably a better fit for a lot of those folks because they can get kind of their metabolic math working a lot better. And so what we would do in that scenario and what you guys are very familiar with up to this point is we would give you guys your numbers and then we would walk you up to where your calories are supposed to be. And so, you know, there are a lot of athletes, you know, like the best athletes tend to go from wherever they were eating. Let's say that someone was eating 1,600 calories as an athlete and believe it or not, that does happen. Um, a lot of these people are genetic freaks. And so... Um, they're able to sustain their athletic ability even when they are not providing their body an adequate amount of food. In fact, I would argue that even to this day, you know, a lot of a lot of you know MMA fighters, Olympians, you know, certainly I would argue that CrossFit is actually probably better just because they've had a lot of exposure to things like what we talk about. Um, Chrissy Mae Gagne, you know, she used to put out some really good stuff. I don't know if she still does. I think she probably does. Um, but the, the idea that you need to fuel your workouts is a little bit, you know, more popular, you know, in, in our athletic communities. And so, you know, hopefully we're doing a lot to kind of 
And I, I think that when we're talking about athletes, you know, the scale is sort of relative. And so we, we sort of have an answer for all of the different ways of thinking. But so you've got an athlete, they're eating 1,500, 1,600 calories, and then you do eat 2,400 calories. What we found is, is that the better the athlete, the shorter the time for recovery to get from 1,600 to 2,400. Typically, we would take the athlete eight weeks to get to that new calorie number. And once again, the better you are as an athlete, the more energy you're getting, the more recovery time now because you have more food, you're sleeping better, all these types of things. Those end up being positive. And so we've certainly seen athletes, instead of the eight-week window, you know, they get there in two to three weeks. Like most of my reverse cycles out of PFFL, you know, is like days, you know, um, because you can significantly change your volume, you know, assuming that you don't go crazy because you could end up getting sick, maybe a little hurt, you know, something like that. So it really, even though we kind of provide a guideline, you know, some people, you know, really are, well, nobody's really in the conservative business. They become into the conservative business because they don't want to gain weight. And that's perfectly fine. That's why you know, Gradually Awesome is a good approach for some people. Um, and then, you know, for some people, rather than adding 100 calories a week, they might add 50 calories. And so we can kind of walk people through that process, right? So now all of a sudden you go, well, all right, that's fine. I'm eating 2,400 calories. I'm burning 2,400 calories. How am I going to lose fat? Well, you actually can lose fat in that scenario. And, it, it, and obviously anybody that's an E-Perform member knows this because we're doing it for people constantly. But the one part of the fat loss equation that seems to be lost in the whole diet industry is the fact that work matters and volume matters. And that if you're doing an adequate amount, you know, eating an adequate amount for what you do, your workouts are better, your recovery is better, and that is favorable as it re relates to your lean tissue. So it's not uncommon. You know, we had a, you know, we're big into body fat testing, as most of you guys know. And we were working with a client, you know, she's 72, and uh, she was working out at a local gym. And within a six-week period, we put about six pounds of muscle on her. Now, what's interesting about six pounds of muscle you go, wow, that's amazing. Eat form, best system ever. First of all, let me be clear about this. I was going to say this earlier. The wave method is not the method. You know, like every single diet out there, you know, wants to say that they've recreated the wheel. We've not recreated the wheel. You know, there's versions of what we're talking about. The, 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 you know, normalization period, um, is common in strength and conditioning. It's just not common, you know, in the dieting world because everyone's scared shitless to tell clients the truth. And, and the truth is that you can't be dieting all the damn time, you know. And the fact that we say that, you know, I mean, the fact that we have 1.5 million fans should tell people that people are ready to hear this stuff, but, you know, no one seems to want to buy that. So whatever, we'll take it. Um, anyway, the... As we're walking through, you know, kind of expanding um, and, you know, talking about, you know, putting a lot of muscle on an athlete, really what we're talking about was just refining a, their bad process and making it better. So for her, and, and we talk about this ad nauseum, but, you know, it seems like you need to reiterate it every single time. When people talk about carbohydrates, and inflammation, they're 100% correct, but there's two things that they're assuming that are wrong. And one, it's that insulin is a storage hormone. I think it's better described as a building hormone. And that, um, you know, it's just storing fat. 
you know, they, they, that's that's what they're doing out there, you know, selling you guys that, you know, if you have insulin, you know, spiking up, you're going to be storing fat. Well, there are instances where it makes sense for insulin to be present, especially around your workouts where you're going to be, you know, trying to, you know, re rehydrate tissue. And so, like, in this instance, you know, for this athlete who was an older athlete and couldn't, like, you know, be a gym killer lady, you know, she just was rehydrating muscle that, you know, was just badly dehydrated from, you know, all the low carbing and low calorie. And so once we started getting, you know, I mean, it changed everything for a woman. I mean, like, it was amazing, you know, the sleep, um, it, you know, it was, it was just really awesome. And it, it was really fun to work with her because, um, you know, she wasn't really set in her ways. And I remember both April and I have, like, great affection for her. Um, but it was it was so awesome for her to to have those results and see those results. But let's be clear: if you're coming from an underfed background, it is highly possible to put on a significant amount of muscle mass in a very short period of time by simply rehydrating that muscle, doing greater work. Um, are you adding? new blood vessels and capillaries and things like that. Probably not in the beginning. And, and it really, you know, Alex Vieta, when we did our podcast with him, you know, he described it that way. And, and it, I think it's just the best way to describe it to people is that when you want to see a result, like in the case of the 72-year-old woman, we were addressing a deficiency. Once we address that deficiency, cool stuff happened. But if you've been working out for the last 15 years and you kind of weight stable and stuff like that, you really have to do, and actually John Meadows mentioned this in, in the podcast. We just uploaded it today. If you guys want to listen to that, that was awesome. Um, but both of these guys talked about the fact that if you want to see a significant movement as it relates to muscle mass or, or fat loss or whatever, you really have to kind of get to that uncomfortable stage, right? And when you look at exercise and, and dieting, we're really talking about stress. And you don't want to be stressed for a very long period of time because obviously that causes chronic conditions that can be problematic for life. So the way that we teach it is we have these cycles. And so, you know, I'll get back to the 1600-2400 scenario. So we've got our athlete, you know, they move from 1600 to 2400, Typically, if they're a, um, you know, Olympic athlete, triathlete, you know, any, any, you know, type of athletic endeavor, we want them cutting out of season. So usually for um, something like a CrossFit Games athlete, we would typically have them cut around kind of the holiday season. Um, I think Jordan Cook, as an example, went from like 210 to 193. Um you know, in that time period. What is nice about working with um, high-level athletes is they do have a commitment level that's a little different than regular folks. And when we first started Eat to Perform, you know, that was something that I was a little concerned about because, you know, I had no idea that this message would resonate with so many people, right? But when I was talking to you know, at the time it was Elizabeth Ackerwally and I was like saying to her, you know, I don't think that that regular folks are ready for this message. Um, and, and she was just like, you know, just do your thing, you know, and, and I started writing and, and there was an audience and, and, and that was awesome. Um, but when you, like one of the things that we'll often see Let's say that you're an Olympic athlete and you're training for Rio. You might be thinking to yourself, well, I'd be faster or whatever if I were to cut, you know, let's say three months into, you know, before the Olympics um, for a qualifier or something like that. The problem with that is the amount of gain that you would get 
from losing a few pounds is nowhere near as beneficial as providing your body an adequate amount of energy. So, so, and you know, another example would be a lot of, you know, athletes that are they qualify through the open for CrossFit and they're going to regionals. And all of a sudden you start to see all of them trying to cut weight. And it's like the craziest thing. They should have already have cut weight. They should already have been they really, you know, it, it defies everything as it relates to like a peaking cycle. And I have yet to find, you know, a a strength and conditioning coach or or really anyone that backs up that method. Um, and and the only people that I've actually seen be a proponent for it have usually cost their athletes big time performance. And so so that's something that you know you want to keep in mind if you're working on an athletic schedule. Now, if you're not trying to make the Olympics, you know you might be fine. Like we had we had an athlete that was training for a competition and you know she was in like a scale division or something like that it was a pretty prominent event though i mean it was it was kind of a big deal but you know she was in a scale division she didn't really care to win she was really just there to kind of participate in the festivities and kind of be part of this bigger event which was really cool so she decided that she would um do a performance focused fat loss cycle and that's what we we refer to our deficit as you know once again not not the system but a system and you know i would argue a really good system because it does the one thing that that most uh diets don't do and that's it normalizes the athlete and so you know when we look at kind of a cutting cycle you're really looking at about 8 to 12 weeks and usually you know the cutting is 8 to 10 um, usually I like it to be about eight. I mean, you, it, let's say that you have an athlete with a fair amount of fat to use. You can usually get a little bit more aggressive with that athlete, assuming that they were eating an adequate amount for, you know, their size, right? So you have, you know, a male athlete, you know, he's been eating 4,500 calories on a daily basis and he would like to, you know, cut some weight, um, and, you know, let's say that he's probably 32% body fat. You know, can you get a little bit more aggressive with that guy so he could lose maybe 12 to 15 pounds in, in eight days? Absolutely. You try to do that with a 119-pound athlete and you're going to be in trouble, right? So you have to kind of factor those things in. In fact, if you're looking, let's say, 119-pound female, um let's say 125 pound female and she wants to get to 120 oftentimes you'll see that athlete kind of stay in that 120 to 125 range so they'll cut down they'll become a little bit more nutrient efficient and they'll get leaner in that process and and we've seen that over and over with you know our super athletes where you know they cut um, it wouldn't surprise me, as an example, if if Jordan ends up at the CrossFit Games at 198 to 200 pounds, but much leaner in, in that process because of the cutting cycle that he did. Um, and, and the way that you gauge that if you're working with an athlete is having kind of measurements in place, you know. And so maybe one rep you know, one rep max snatch, something like that, you know, obviously that would be favorable as the athlete is weighing more, but what's your one mile time? You know, what's your Fran time in CrossFit or, you know, what's your 100 meter time in the, for the Olympics? So those are the things that you kind of want to want to test is the athlete, if they're going up in weight, are they maintaining their athleticism? One of the things that people will often talk about is, uh, every time my body weights up, you know, I feel like, you know, I can't do pull-ups. A lot of that is the way that you're internalizing that message. You know, 
Um, you know, I, I can certainly do, you know, I think my, you know, my weight's probably about 180 right now. You know, normally I'm 170. I'm a little bit heavier as, as I've started to put on a little mass. Um, but I can do way more pull-ups at 180 than I ever could at 150. You know, um, that was the lowest I ever got. Um, and, and really, you know, I was, I was too small at that point. Um, since then I've been able to put on, you know, significant amount of mass and obviously, you know, that's been favorable as it relates to sort of my athleticism. Now, you know, does it always correlate great? You know, no, I'm still, I'm still not very good CrossFitter. You know, I don't think that that's a big secret. Um, but you know, my lifts, you know, when I deadlifted 474, you know, I think I was 185, 189, something like that. And I've been pretty close to that at 175, 180. So, you know, I've been able to maintain a lot of the, the progress that I've been able to make, you know, without um, just adding mass. Now, one of the interesting thing about about putting on weight fast, I, I think most people would know if you put the faster that you put on weight, typically it's not gonna correlate to more muscle. It's going to end up, you know, with stored body fat. But but just having more weight will allow you to typically lift more weight. One of the things that, and I'm not a huge fan of of like, you know, lean gaining and stuff like that. Um, you know, certainly at a you know, in a previous life when, you know, most people actually don't know this, though I've actually talked about it in, in the last few podcasts, um, one or two of the last ones. Um, early on, you know, some of my experiences with fasting was, you know, in various publications. And so that was one of the ways that people got to know me. But since, you know, various experiments as you know the years have gone by you know my thought process on that is that you pretty much end up wasting your time and so usually what you want to do is you want to allow you know like as an example as you're coming out of something so let's say you're doing you know the wave method and you know, we'll use the 1600-2400 scenario, and then you decide that, you know, you're going to want to put on muscle, um, and let's say that was an athlete that was 145 pounds, you know, it's out of season, and they're wanting to get a little bit stronger, usually I would say to that person, you know, you need to mentally allow yourself to get to about 155-160, and so what 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 happens in that scenario, because a lot of people don't realize this, and this is what I was talking about a little bit with the pull-ups, is that your body is actually your biggest resistance tool, right? And so just being 155, 160 as a, as a female, you know, best example of this by far, if you're familiar with CrossFit, is Sam Briggs. You know, Sam Briggs, you know, and I actually got to sit down and have a conversation with Sam at the Granite Games, and once again, I mean, it was, it was so cool to be able to have these conversations with people because, you know, I remember when we were saying that, you know, a lot of the male CrossFit Games athletes were 10%. People were like, no, there's no way, dude. Rich Froney's like totally 5%, you know. And then when we went to like the CrossFit, um, uh, it wasn't like a competition. It was more like it was kind of a seminar, but was all these really high profile people we were able to body fat test all those people and and sure enough what we were saying was true all along um but you know for probably three to six months i was saying to people that sam briggs had really the right approach you know that out of season she allowed her weight to drift up a little bit she got a little bit stronger and then she cut you know, similar to the way that we did it. So I talked to her at the Granite Games and pretty much confirmed exactly what, you know, I had been saying for a while. And you you just know it when you see a person, you know, and you see 
how their body just kind of dramatically changes that they kind of get it more than other people do. And that's one of the reasons why you see Sam Briggs being fairly competitive in a lot of situations. I mean, I would say that the year that she won really set up well for her body style, right? So getting back to the wave method, you know, what I wanted to make clear was that, you know, if an athlete has more fat to use, they can be a little bit more aggressive in the cutting cycle. Um, when someone's a little bit leaner, a lot of the time, the weight that they may lose might not be that big. Even their deficits can't really be that big just because they're not like huge athletes and so they don't have huge caloric needs. And so um, a lot of the times getting those people an adequate amount of food, adequate amount of protein, carbohydrates will be the answer, you know, and, and we actually had one of our athletes, um, Kylie Black, where she went from 21 to 15 in like a year, kind of that same formula, right? She was pretty lean, was able to do more work because she's eating more food, having carbohydrates, and she was scared shitless. I remember that so vividly, and now all of a sudden, you know, she's had some great results, so that was really cool. Um, but kind of the, the in-between level, you know, you're really looking at about, you know, eight to 10 pounds, probably about eight pounds. So here's the big thing. And we're actually going to be doing a chapter on this in, in the audio book that I'm kind of like releasing out. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but if you're following the podcast at all, you know, well, if you're listening to this six months from now, it might not be up, but, um, for right now I've been dripping out. Uh, various chapters for the new audiobook and it's going really well it's kind of a fun project for me to work on but it's called killing the diet industry and um, you know basically I have an introduction up you know chapter one um, chapter two comes out tomorrow it's called destroying your metabolism and then I'm basically walking people through the timeline of like the research that I was doing but also like um, some of the failed approaches that ultimately kind of showed me the path of doing the right thing, right? Um, so one of the big things I'm going to be talking about in the upcoming chapter, um, and I'll bring it up right now, so you might not necessarily need that chapter, but you know, usually we go into a little bit more in depth, is when people tend to diet, what happens is they get too caught up on a number that they want to reach. So they work their butt off. <coughs> they were 215 pounds and they get down to 200 pounds. And they, you know, go on vacation, whatever it is. And then they come back and they're 203 pounds. So maybe they suck it up, get back under 200 pounds, you know. But oftentimes what ends up happening is they just say, you know, the scale hates me. I'm going to avoid the scale for a while. And then six months later, they go to the doctor and they weigh 230 pounds, right? So our argument is that as you're coming out of a cutting cycle, you have to allow some blowback. So in an instance where an athlete is 215, and obviously this is all relative, so you're going to have to kind of you know, play with this for yourself, but, you know, in the case of a smaller athlete, you know, the blowback might be two, three pounds. Um, in the case of, you know, let's say a 155 pound female, you know, it might be three to five pounds. Um, in the case of, you know, the person that, that went from 215 to 200, you really, you'd want like a little leeway of about five pounds. So what ends up happening at that point is obviously when your body is more efficient because you're, you're, it needs to be, right? You're eating less food um, for, you know, that's kind of the basic of how a deficit is set up. So your body becomes really good at processing nutrients. So now all of a sudden you start introducing more nutrients you know, carbohydrates, you know, energy-dense foods, foods you like, 
And so that results in a little bit of inflammation, and so your weight will go up in that process. But similar to what I was talking about earlier, if your athleticism goes up at a similar rate, oftentimes that 205 blowback will come back to 200 fairly easily, especially if you're kind of cognizant of things. This is why, you know, <clears throat> when people say, I don't look at the scale anymore, that number means nothing to me. You know, it's gravitational pull. I got it. Cool. But here's the deal. When you are making major changes to your life and you don't really know what's going on and you'd like to know, more data is going to be, you know, the 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 signal of the day, right? You really want to make sure that you're getting as much information. And the scale is is one piece of information. The problem with the scale, is, and you know, I say this all the time, um, the problem isn't that the scale is saying one thing or another thing. The problem is your expectation of what the scale is saying, and your expect if your expectation is low, 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 or in the case of someone that's bulking, high, 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 you know, it's kind of missing the overall point. It's just pointing you in a direction, and ultimately there's a lot of factors that, that go on from day to day. And so if you can kind of divorce yourself from the expectation, you know, I mean, in the coach's course, I often, I'm sorry, uh, the group coaching, I'll often talk about my wife's approach. You know, typically she does it weekly. Women tend to hold water differently than men. Men's numbers tend to be a little bit more consistent. Women can be all over the map. And so it ends up being where, you know, you might want to have, you know, check-ins, maybe three days, maybe seven days, whatever it is, just so, you know, you're kind of keeping an eye on your goals, right? And, and the results that you're looking to see. So as we sort of kind of close things down, you know, I'm going to end on, on a few notes. Um, the, once again, like the expectation um, is really kind of the big factor there. When we're talking about, you know, coming out of a dieting cycle, you don't want to be like super aggressive. You know, what the way that Mike describes it is really, really awesome. You want um, the most amount or the least amount of interference for the most amount of return. And the more aggressive that you have to be, the longer your period of recovery is going to be. You know, so if, you know, you're in a cutting cycle and, you know, you are able to get to your your goals, you know, you're normally eating 2400 and then, you know, the wave method is sort of set up for you where your your um, average low number is about 1800 to 1900. Well, you know, you can be back to a normal situation in five weeks. The more aggressive you have to be, the longer your recovery period will be, the, the more affected by, you know, nutrients you will be. And so you will often see kind of some of that weight jump up a little quicker the more aggressive you have to go. So obviously we would like to be able to keep the athlete, you know, um, shoot, I can't remember what Mike says. Maybe I'll bring it up in show notes if I, if I remember it back. It's not a big point, but, um, and he mentions it in the manual for fat loss if you're an ecorn member. Um, so from there, basically, you have your, your eight-week period, then typically you know four to five weeks for recovery, and then you want to kind of sit there for a while. You know, now if let's say that you you're a coach watching this and you're trying to walk your athlete through it a little bit, um, the way that you would want to do that is the leaner athletes really need to stabilize for a longer period of time. So if you're that hundred and and 25 pound athlete and all of a sudden you know um, her body fat's lower but her weight gets back to 125 
you know, you want to make sure that she stays there, you know, for like nine months before we go through yet another cutting cycle to lean her out yet again. I mean, she's probably has lower body fat percentage from that standpoint. And, and I'm, I'm using these, these times as guidelines as a way to illustrate how, you know, different athletes can use it. So, so, you know, for your athlete, you know, maybe two years is, is, you know, the, um, the best way for them or maybe six months, but don't always assume that the shorter time period is the best way to go because for most people it isn't um, and you, they'll tend to see a negative result. So I would say probably six months, you know, once somebody goes through a cycle, they lose eight to 10 pounds, they have a little blowback of about three, three pounds, and maybe their weight's a little bit up going into, you know, throughout that six month cycle, it kind of hangs in that same range. You know, obviously you don't want to, you know, unless, unless it's your goal, you know, to put on weight or muscle, you don't want to give back all the hard work that you put in. And so you want to kind of keep that in mind. And usually, you know, the, the, the component that, that I want people to really think about is the work component. You know, as you're bringing food back into the equation, really, you know, your sleep should be better, you know, your body should be upregulating, and your workout should be better, right? And so that, that's kind of the goal from, from there. Um, when an athlete has more fat to use, um, usually if we can kind of get them through kind of a reversing cycle, um, they can be a little bit shorter, let's say three to four months. And so if let's say, you know, your athlete has a hundred pounds to lose, um, you know, it's probably going to be a little frustrating for them, you know, to, to walk through kind of these, these shorter cycles where they're losing 15 to 20 pounds, you know, and then, you know, by the end, they're only losing 10 pounds, but ultimately ends up being sustainable. And they're, they're constantly, you know, if they started off at 4,500 calories, you know, they may actually end up being at 3,500 calories by the end of it because they're a smaller athlete, right? And so, you know, you kind of want to adjust that. That's the last thing I really wanted to say about this is that, you know, don't think of this also from the standpoint of like just constantly ramping up you know, your calories or your athlete's calories. You know, there's a lot of instances where, you know, an athlete's calories might go lower. As an example, myself, um, my training has moved more to, you know, uh, sets and reps than CrossFit. I, I CrossFit less, you know. I mean, when I first started off, you know, um, you know, when I walked into a CrossFit gym, I was 162 pounds. I went from 230 to 162. So good majority of my weight loss happened outside of CrossFit. A lot of my muscle gain, though, happened um, within CrossFit, l at least early on. I would say about 15 of that, the pounds that I gained in muscle happened around the time I was CrossFit, kind of newbie gains type of stuff. And then since then, there's probably been another 15 to 20 that I've been able to kind of add to that mix. Um, that's been a little bit more um, related to kind of sets and rep type stuff. And so that's usually a little different than the way that most people are trying to do it. And also I've been able to kind of like mentally allow myself. You know, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that if you've lost a lot of weight, sometimes mentally a little bit tough to allow yourself to, you know, put on five to 10 pounds. Um, but that is a little bit of the requirement if you're trying to put on lean mass and if you're trying to kind of reach some body aesthetic goals because it's this problem where we're always thinking less, less, less is the answer. Sometimes building muscle is a little bit of the answer too. So um, there are examples, you know, like, you know, a great one for me was that when I first started CrossFit, I had to take my calories from 3,000 to 4,000 calories as my body was adjusting. You know, my weight was actually going down. You know, I, I went from 162 to 155, kind of sit that, sat there for a long time. I don't know why I, you know, it became a goal to get to, you know, 149, but I did. Um, but truthfully, I stayed at 155 for like a really long time. 
Um, you know, I'd say for like probably the first three to four months, you know, I was eating 4,000 calories. Uh, my body kind of acclimated to that relatively quickly. Ended up, uh, you know, once it was all said and done, um, at about 3,000 calories. I would say right now, you know, I kind of, you know, on higher volume days, I'm, I'm probably closer to that 3,000 calorie um, number. On lower volume days, I'm probably more, you know, 26, 2700, right? So um, that would be an example where my average has gone down, you know, because my volume has gone down. And so don't naturally assume that, you know, there is a point where you'll ultimately out eat your metabolism and calorie balance always matters, right? Um, so yeah, there you go. So maximum effect for the minimal amount of interference. Gosh, I don't know why I can't remember. It's like three words and I can't remember. Uh, I'll get it in the show notes. Anyway, I'll try and think of some of the things that I brought up and then kind of add them to the page once we're done here. But I hope I, I hope this was helpful. I think it was because no one's asked any questions. So it sounds like we've been able to cover a lot of ground. So I appreciate everybody listening. And uh, if you guys have any questions, you know, I'm going to post this. Uh, probably in like the lifetime forums. If you're not an Eat to Perform member, what, what's nice is, is, you know, if you're a quick start lifetime client, you know, you have kind of more personal interaction, which is, is kind of neat. And then we also have our coaches course, which some of the people that are in here are also in that. And so we'll be able to kind of communicate with people from that perspective. So I appreciate everybody listening. I think this one should be fairly well received um uh, you know we'll see about the whole progenics thing but i appreciate everybody being here and we'll talk to you guys later bye-bye